This video is sponsored by The Great Courses Plus, a subscription on-demand video learning service where you can enjoy lectures from the very best professors from all over the world. But more on that at the end of the video. By the summer of 859, a new dark age had descended upon much of Western Europe. From the south, Arab pirates crossed over the Mediterranean seaways to raid and pillage. From the east, Magyar horse riders made near-annual raiding expeditions far and wide throughout the peninsula. And of course, fleets of ambitious Scandinavians permeated the seas and river systems from the Boyne to the Volga. Others made new lives for themselves along those rivers and seas and in the remote islands of the windswept Atlantic. A few, no doubt, greedily gazed out at the rich and fragile Anglo-Saxon kingdoms, perhaps awaiting the next great conquest, along with the inevitable land and glory that came with it. modern-day Spain, however, the situation was different. Just like in the rest of the continent, small groups of Norsemen, known as Maju or fire worshippers by the Andalusians, making no exception between them and Persian Zoroastrians in the contemporary literature, had made a few occasional forays into the peninsula, perhaps scouting out the land for larger expeditions to come. Though, for the most part, these attacks seem to have been few and far between, with easier pickings existing much closer to home. Unlike any other land that Vikings launched raids upon, barring a few exceptions such as the great city of Constantinople, the Iberian Peninsula was ready for war. Unlike the Carolingian rulers of Francia to the north of the Pyrenees, and the various rulers of Britain and Ireland beyond, the Emirate of Cordoba, ruled over by the exiled remnants of a dynasty that had once held sway over an empire stretching from the Atlantic to the Indian Ocean, had a professional standing army at their disposal. Unlike in Francia and Britain, where no such long-standing institutions existed and armies were made up almost entirely of freed men called up by their liege lords to fight during times of war, and thus took time and effort to be raised, and even more in keeping them mobilised for an extended period of time. In Al-Andalus, a standing army of slave soldiers known as Mamluks mostly hailing from the wild forest lands of Eastern Europe, stood ever at the ready to defend the realm against potential foes, of which there were many. In the northwest of the peninsula, nestled between wild highlands and valleys, lay a patchwork of Christian states, grizzled veterans of a thousand battles against the ever-encroaching spread of Islam from the south, For the most part, 
These were the last survivors from the Visigothic kingdom that had once held sway in Iberia after the fall of Rome in the 5th century AD. Though some were much older, the Basques, having held on to their unique culture even during the long years of Roman occupation. By the mid-9th century, the kingdoms of Astorias, Galicia and Navarre had long acted as the front line of defence for the other Christian realms to the north. This was a titanic war of opposing ideologies that even in the very midst of the worst of the Viking invasions was generally perceived to be of much greater importance than the threat from the pagan Northmen. And as a result of the near yearly attacks from Al-Andalus, Astorias, Galicia and Navarre were perpetually ready for war. Yet, of course, a few particularly ambitious Vikings did try their luck. In 844, a great fleet of over a hundred ships, flush from recent successes in Brittany and Ireland, headed all the way down the Atlantic seaboard to launch a surprise attack on the Christian kingdoms of the north, as well as the Emirate of Cordoba, culminating in a vast swathe of destruction and a weeks-long battle for the city of Seville that did more damage to Al-Andalus than the previous century of war with the Christian kingdoms. By the end of the year, barely a third of the fleet made it back to friendly territory. Though these veterans were by then weighed down by the incredible amounts of plunder they carried, and tales of more to be found. It was clear from the survivors of the raid that Al-Andalus was a truly fearsome opponent. But it was also clear, due to the Andalusian inclusion in the vast Mediterranean-spanning trade network of the Islamic world, that it was rich beyond their wildest dreams. Of course, it was only a matter of time before the Vikings returned. And in the early summer of 859, another vast raiding fleet of longboats set out from their pirate bases along Francia's Loire Valley to again devastate the entirety of mainland Europe's Atlantic coast and arrive in Andalusian waters. Yet, this expedition described as a great sea voyage in the Frankish sources, was even more ambitious than the one that came before it. Times had changed in the 15-year period since the 844 raid, and now, according to later chroniclers such as William of Jumierge, the ambition of its leaders was not only to enter the Mediterranean Sea, a theatre of operations previously closed off to Scandinavians, but to sack the very city of Rome itself. A shadow of its former self during the 9th century, yet still the spiritual centre of the Roman Catholic faith. Over the next three years, the fleet ravaged its way across the shores of this great southern ocean, making those warriors some of the first Scandinavians to raid not only the unbelievably rich Iberian state of Al-Andalus, but also the soft underbelly of Francia, mainland Italy and beyond. 
whilst the leaders of the 844 expedition, no doubt great and renowned warriors of their day, remain entirely unknown. The leaders thought by many to have led this second expedition are still remembered today as two of the greatest of all Vikings in history. The elder of the two, Haston, was a grizzled tactician, a born survivor who may have launched a sustained attack on the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms later in his life. The other, according to the later saga traditions, as well as a few scraps of near-contemporary evidence, was a son of the famed sea king Ragnar Lothbrok. His name was Bjorn Ironside. Together, the two men were about to cement their places in history and legend. Our story begins two centuries earlier. In the first decades of the 8th century, a small, hardened force of Berber horsemen crossed over the Straits of Gibraltar from northern Africa to enter the Iberian Peninsula, the first Muslims to make the crossing in a state of war. In just a handful of years, the Visigothic kingdom was stamped out of existence, turning much of Iberia into the latest province in the ever-growing Umayyad Caliphate, the largest and arguably the most militaristic of the Arabic Islamic empires ever to exist. Launching campaign after campaign in all directions from their power base of Damascus since seizing power in 661. Only in the Cantabrian mountains of the northwest did Christians hold out, rallying around a few ousted Visigothic nobles and using the region's obscurity to retain their own autonomy. The Umayyad conquest was quickly followed by large-scale immigration of Berbers from northern Africa, a population shift that changed the culture of the peninsula forever. In 750, however, a brutal empire-wide coup originating in Persia led to the deaths of practically every member of the Umayyad dynasty and the establishment of a new, more tolerant state in the form of the Abbasids, based at the newly founded city of Baghdad. One Umayyad prince by the name of Abd al-Rahman did escape, however, and seized the chaos of the revolution to make his way to the far western extremity of the Islamic world, to found a breakaway state there centred on the old Roman metropolis of Cordoba. Luckily for Abd al-Rahman, the establishment of Abbasid power was also accompanied by a gradual shift in focus away from the Mediterranean and the Christian West and towards the more lucrative trade routes to India, China and the East. Thus, Andalusia was given the breathing room needed to establish itself as an entirely independent realm. There, on the frontier of the wild Atlantic, Abd al-Rahman found a similar enough climate to his homeland of Syria, importing flora and fauna to remind him of home, and began the establishment of Andalusia as a prosperous realm, in time developing many of the largest cities in Western Europe. 
with the greatest of them all, Cordoba, likely surpassing a population of 200,000 people. Throughout its entire 250-year existence, the unified Muslim state based at Cordoba engaged in perennial war with the kingdoms of the north. Though by itself, the army of the emirate was perhaps the most powerful in Western Europe at the time. As a front line of holy war, jihadis flocked to the peninsula from all over the Islamic world, bolstering their numbers still further. Unlike the other lands of Western Europe, where only the richest and best fighters could gain access to decent armour and weapons, the rest fighting with anything from farming equipment to hunting bows. Practically the entire Andalusian army, infantry and cavalry alike, were equipped with iron helmets and scale armour. And of course, faced with this behemoth of an army, Galicia, Astorias and Navarre remained always ready for war. Though the raid of 844 is generally seen as the first Scandinavian incursion into Iberia, the 13th century historian Ibn al-Athir describes a force of al-Majus that came to the aid of the king of Galicia, Alphonse II, 50 years earlier in 795. This coincides with the Carolingian chronicler Notker's account of longships harrying southern Aquitaine during the last years of the great King Charlemagne's reign, and another confirmed raid there in 799. Other hints of Scandinavian activity in the Basque country exist in the following decades too. For the most part, Scandinavians didn't discriminate between targets, Christians and Muslims being raided with equal ferocity nor did political borders mean much to them. By the time the great expedition reached Iberia in 844, it had already ravaged its way through southern Francia, then in a state of civil war between the King Charles the Bald and the rebellious ruler of Aquitaine, Pepin, who may have actually invited the Vikings to aid him in his independence struggle. When they got to Iberia, however, the situation was different. Unlike Francia, the Christian kingdoms there, led in battle by King Romero I, inflicted a heavy defeat upon them at the city of La Coruña, aided, according to the annals of St. Bertin, by great missile-throwing war machines, technology perhaps borrowed from Al-Andalus to the south. 70 of the Viking ships were said to have been captured on the beach and burned, with still more of the force then being lost in a storm. Though the remnants of the fleet pushed on to try their luck further south, finally achieving success across the border at Lisbon on the 20th of August. The Andalusian chronicler Al-Razi explains that at this point they still had 108 ships. 54 larger and 54 smaller, meaning that when the fleet set out from the Loire, it may have consisted of more than 200 vessels. For the next few weeks, the raids 
were extraordinarily successful. The emirate had been taken completely by surprise, allowing for the sack of Cadiz, Medina, Sidonia and Algericas, as well as the city of Asilla on the northern coast of Africa, at the time still held by the distant Abbasid Caliph of Baghdad, half a world away in Mesopotamia. In early October, the fleet turned inland along the Guadalquivir River Valley to the fertile heart of the Emirate, taking advantage of the same ability of their longships to easily navigate shallow waters, as they had done in the Seine and the Loire. On the 3rd of October, they reached the city of Seville, perhaps the second largest city in Iberia at the time. Lacking defensive walls, for the next two weeks, the city remained in Viking hands. Just as they tended to do in Francia and in Ireland, they based themselves at a defensible island, the Isla Menor, from where they launched attacks far and wide throughout the entire region. Gathering captives by the thousand and plunder by the boatload. Despite the apparent battle readiness of his army, the attack seems to have completely taken the Emir by surprise. Few offensive attacks had ever been launched on his realm, and for the time being, he had no response. Finally, after several weeks of chaos, and potentially when Cordoba itself was threatened, Abd al-Rahman personally took to the field to defeat the invaders. In a number of sweeping victories, the far superior Andalusian army made light work of the relatively spread out Vikings, killing a thousand of them on one occasion and destroying 30 of their ships. Many of the longships were destroyed by Greek fire, a secretive military technology potentially hurled from great catapults. At the same time, this same technology was also becoming known to the Swedish and Slavic Vikings then making forays against the great city of Constantinople. Another bottleneck between Islam and Christianity. In the aftermath, more than 400 captives were hanged from palm trees in the capital, whereas the heads of the unnamed leader of the force and 200 of his retainers were sent to the Berber Emir in Tangier. A few survivors, perhaps bereft of their ships, may have converted to Islam and remained near Seville. The bulk of the fleet, however, were eventually allowed to limp home, in return for ransomed prisoners and plunder. Less than a quarter of those who left Francia in 844 returned home alive. Yet, they returned rich men. But who were the Vikings of the 844 expedition? And what effects did the attack have on the Emirate? In the immediate aftermath of the attack, a court poet by the name of Yahya Hakam al-Jayani was sent north as an envoy to the Majus, 
Sometimes known as Al-Ghazal, he had previously completed a mission to the Byzantine court of Emperor Theophilus, and we can thus ascertain that this was a very important mission. It remains unclear exactly where the embassy travelled to, or just exactly what was agreed. The 12th century Spanish scholar Ibn Diyar, however, called it. A large island in the ocean with running water and gardens. Between it and the mainland is a journey of three days. Innumerable of the Al-Majus live on this island. Close to it are many other islands, large and small. All the inhabitants are Majus, and the closest mainland also belongs to them, several days' journey away. They were formerly Magus, but now follow the Christian religion, since they have abandoned the worship of fire and the religion they followed previously, and converted to Christianity. This description could apply to Ireland or Denmark, with the leading candidates of each being the Norse sea king Turgesius of Dublin, or the Danish king Horik on the Danish islands. Of course, with danger comes opportunity, and surely there was an underlying economic reason for the embassy, perhaps to foster trade between the two regions. Roger Collins, one of the leading scholars of early medieval Spain, has suggested Scandinavians as a potential source of the slave trade operating during this time. There was a strong demand in the Emirate and in the Moorish states of North Africa for Frankish, Slavic, English and Irish slaves, Al-Andalus being one of the main suppliers of eunuchs to the Islamic world. And scholars such as Collins tend to think that many of these unfortunate enough people, some ending up as far away as the borders of India, would have been supplied directly or indirectly through middlemen by Scandinavian slave traders, potentially from the 840s onwards. Though the slave trade leaves next to no trace in the archaeological record, there are several towns in Iberia, such as Lodimanos in Leon and Lodimanos in Galicia, that bear the name Northmen, leading some to suggest these as trading centres for slavers. Of course, trade wasn't the only repercussion of the raid. The immediate response of the Emir in the latter 840s was to build a new fleet of heavy warships known as Dromons, complete with catapults carrying Greek fire. He also drilled an army of sailors, a chain of lookout posts along the Atlantic, and an arsenal at Seville. Unlike in Francia, however, the floodgates remained firmly closed, with no attacks coming between 844 and 859, besides a few rogue vessels such as two captured off Lisbon in 854. In 859, however, another pair of longships was captured. Though on this occasion, the large amounts of plunder filling the decks to the brim might have given the Coast Guard pause for thought. Lo and behold, within weeks, a second great army arrived. And the deeds of this one would far eclipse the last. By the mid-850s, at least three major groups of Scandinavians had taken up residence in fortified encampments along the Frankish river systems. 
in particular the Loire, the Seine and the Somme rivers. By the mid-850s, the situation was very bad, with endemic raids being further exasperated by King Charles the Bold's rebellious family members and nobles. The chronicler Amentius of Nemortier laments the situation. The number of ships increases, the endless flood of Vikings never ceases to grow bigger. Everywhere Christ's people are the victims of massacre, burning and plunder. The Vikings overrun all that lies before them, and none can withstand them. Then follows a roll call of Frankish cities and towns that were repeatedly plundered, including Paris, Orléans, and practically every other population centre in the country. Amidst this carnage, one of those groups centred on the defensible island of the Azelle on the Seine was led by Bjorn Ironside. Like his father Ragnar Lothbrok before him, likely the instigator of one of the earliest and most successful attacks on Paris. In truth, Bjorn is better known to legend than history. Though, like his father, a few scant contemporary references do suggest a genuine historical figure. Said to have been a powerful chieftain and naval commander in his own right, according to a number of later writers, Bjorn is said to have initially been a captain under the warlord Haston, a close associate of Ragnar, who had already been active in the river networks of Francia for decades. It's likely that a large proportion of the warriors who made up the great heathen army had originated in pirate bases along the rivers of Francia before they came to Britain in 865. Haston had probably been active on the coasts of Francia since the mid-830s, where he is associated with raids on the island of Normantia, before establishing himself as a regional power in the disunited and chaotic interior of modern-day France. By the mid-850s, both Bjorn and Haston had risen to become the joint leaders of a substantial force of Vikings, large enough to be a concern to the king. In 857, the Ossel Vikings were besieged by King Charles the Bald, who sought to get rid of them entirely. Yet, as so often happened during this time, a group of independent-minded nobles invited Charles's brother, Louis the German, to lay claim to West Frankish territories, and Charles had to go and stop him. Eventually, Charles opted to fight fire with fire and utilised another band of Scandinavians under a leader named Wayland to drive out the Ossel Vikings, paying them a vast hoard of silver for the privilege. Rather than fight, however, Wayland simply accepted another vast payment of silver to let the Ossel Vikings leave Francia entirely. For better or for worse, they were leaving the river systems, and they had plans. If later chroniclers such as Dudo of Saint-Quentin are to be taken even a little at face value, 
these were audacious plans. Though theirs was a plan formulated in order to attain great wealth, it was also, no doubt, a conscious quest for fame and glory, both central qualities in the Nordic heroic ideal. The contemporary sources suggest a fleet numbering somewhere between 62 and 100 ships, meaning it was potentially not as large as the previous expedition. Just like the last raid, however, the expedition did not get off to the best of starts, becoming mired in Iberia's northern kingdoms, and eventually driven off from the wealthy pilgrimage centre of Santiago de Compostela after an unsuccessful attack. Carrying on to the south, they attempted to emulate the actions of their predecessors by again entering the Guadalquivir River, perhaps even led there by veterans from the last expedition. This time, however, they found their way blocked by formidable defences and the army of the new Emir, Mohammed I. Several longships were burned in the conflict by the terrible Greek fire of Mohammed's Dromans. Times had changed since 844, and a decision was made to leave the region entirely, continuing the strategy of pushing ever onwards to try their luck elsewhere, knowing that eventually they would find somewhere off guard. The fleet pushed on through the Straits of Gibraltar, encountering little to no resistance, making them the first known Vikings to enter the Mediterranean. Here they found much more success, plundering and burning the cities of Cadiz and Algiracas. Next, they raided the North African coast, descending upon the small emirate of Nikor, sacking it and holding it for a week, whilst seizing two women from the royal harem who were only released after a hefty ransom was paid by Mohammed. They also seem to have captured some black Africans during this time described as Blahmen in near-contemporary sources. These unfortunate figures had likely been brought to North Africa by Arab slave traders. And, just like the Europeans sold to Arab buyers, they would end up a world away from their homeland. The Vikings found them so intriguing and exotic that they kept some of them for the entire duration of the expedition, eventually seeing a number of them end up in Ireland. Vikings carried on north, attacking Valencia and the Balearic Islands, before finally arriving in the south of Francia and entering the Rhone River. In a lightning strike, they sacked the city of Narbonne, before setting up camp in the Carmagu for the winter, a marshy region at the mouth of the Rhone with a defensible island that protected them from the Franks and gave them an escape route if necessary. Following spring, they headed deep upriver to sack Nimes and Arles. For the Franks, now harassed on all sides, it seemed as if this group might become yet another permanent fixture in their political landscape, just like in the rivers of the north. At Valence, however, they found grim determination and were pushed back by the local count, Gerard. From there, they decided to make for Italy instead. 
Though Scandinavians were strangers to the Mediterranean, the sea had seen its fair share of other pirates over the centuries, most recently in the form of Arabs from Northern Africa and the Levant, who would continue to launch periodical raids until well into the 11th century. Recently, they had taken the islands of Crete and Sicily, though the most jarring attack of all came in 846, when Rome itself was sacked. Whether Bjorn or Haston were aware of this or not, they apparently sought to do the same. With ships so filled with plunder that they sat low in the water, at last the force reached Italy. Here the tale leaves the realms of historicity and enters legend, with the only accounts being written at least a century later by Norman chroniclers intent on demonstrating the deeds of their ancestors. According to Dudo of St. Quintan, upon reaching the city that they believed to be Rome, Haston concocted an elaborate plan where he at first contacted the locals in order to feign a conversion to Christianity, before pretending to die and requesting a Christian funeral inside the city. Once inside, however, he leapt out of the coffin to launch into a vicious sack of the city. The issue with this story is that very similar ones are later attributed by figures such as the Norman adventurer Robert Guiscard and the Norwegian king Harald Hardrada, meaning it may have been a simple literary trope of the time. But what we do know is that the city sacked was not Rome at all, but Luna. Nonetheless, the force pushed on up the river Arno to attack the cities of Pisa and Fiesol before re-entering the open sea. After this, the whereabouts of the expedition remain relatively unknown. It seems that an attack on Rome was not in fact attempted, with some hints offered in contemporary sources that they instead entered the Byzantine sphere of influence in the eastern Mediterranean. Later Arabic and Spanish sources claim that Vikings raided Greece and Alexandria during this time, and if they did, it may have been Bjorn and Haston's fleet that did it. The next we hear of the expedition is in 861, when they attempted to slip back through the Straits of Gibraltar on their way home. Unluckily for them, a fleet of battle-ready Dromans waited for them. The Straits of Gibraltar are only nine miles wide, so the chances of them getting through unnoticed were slim. And besides, Mohammed had had two years to get ready for their inevitable return. Bjorn and Haston were likely unaware of the strong currents flowing into the Mediterranean from the Atlantic, and were thus slowed down to a crawl, rowing as hard as they could through the straits as fire rained down upon them from the awaiting Dromans. In the carnage that ensued, two-thirds of the fleet was destroyed, no doubt seeing an obscene amount of wealth, plunder and captives descend to the bottom of the ocean amidst the terrible firestorm. Nonetheless, Haston, Bjorn and 20 ships made it through, finally turning north to the Loire and home. As they passed along the Christian kingdoms of the north, however, the two leaders couldn't help but launch into one final attack, pausing at Navarre 
they headed inland. Little did they know it, but they were about to pull off the greatest feat of the whole journey, attacking the city of Pamplona to defeat and capture the local king, Garcia, before successfully ransoming him back for a vast sum of 70,000 gold pieces. When they finally got back to the Loire a few weeks later, they were rich beyond their wildest dreams. Like the earlier expedition of 844, probably little more than a quarter of those who set out returned in 862. Compared to Francia, where success was far more likely, the raid had been devastating. Though, naturally, the voyage seems to have taken on a truly epic quality in the minds of succeeding generations. No doubt, as the survivors' tales grew in the telling, spawning a multitude of sagas and stories that followed. After the expedition, the two leaders parted ways. Haston remained in Francia, whereas Bjorn headed north in the direction of Denmark. Perhaps, like so many other sea kings before him and after, to utilise his newfound wealth in order to make a bid for power at home. Though some later traditions tend to suggest that Bjorn made it, dying there a wealthy man, potentially having founded a royal dynasty in Sweden. Another tradition, however, and one favoured by historians such as John Haywood, is that he never made it. Dying in Frisia after losing everything in a shipwreck. Whilst Bjorn and Haston had been away, their old rival Wayland had briefly become a new powerhouse in Francia. Though he sought even more, allying himself with Charles the Bald and converting to Christianity, only to be killed in a duel by one of his pagan followers. It would be a long time yet before integration between mainland European and Scandinavian. And many more wars were still to be fought. By the time Bjorn's supposed brothers, Ivar, Halfdan and Ubba, arrived in East Anglia a couple of years later in 865. Some of those present had no doubt already waged war across the entire Mediterranean. By 889, just as Haston, or potentially a younger warlord bearing his name, prepared to launch yet another attack upon the last Anglo-Saxon kingdom of Wessex, a Viking force again returned to Iberia. This one got as far as Seville, before being heavily defeated and limping back home. Another expedition to Al-Andalus was defeated in 912, and from then onwards, a different strategy would be tried. In the early 10th century, political developments in the rest of the Islamic world, namely the rise of a rival caliphate to the Abbasids in the form of the Shiite Fatimids of northern Africa, led Cordoba to declare itself as a caliphate too becoming a focal point for neighbouring Muslim states and even more powerful than before. From then onwards, when Vikings travelled to Iberia to raid, their attacks remained very much focused on the northern kingdoms. 
966, an overflow of Danish mercenaries sent to help Duke Richard I in the newly founded Franco-Scandinavian state of Normandy, continued on their rampage, eventually establishing themselves and overwintering in Iberia for the very first time. For the next five years, under a warlord named Gunnard, they continued to maintain a presence in the region. A generation later, in the early 11th century, the Norwegian prince, Olaf Haraldsson, arrived on a similar raiding campaign. Described in great detail by Olaf's court poets, Ottar the Black and Sigvat, the campaign was later omitted by the 12th century Icelandic scholar, Snorri Sturluson, when he wrote Olaf's saga. The Scandinavian world by then being staunchly Christian and unable to square itself with Olaf, the patron saint of Norway, massacring fellow Christians in a Viking campaign. By Olaf's time, the days of the Vikings were already numbered, with the raiding of Christian lands increasingly frowned upon. Attacks continued nonetheless, right up until 1066, but by then, a new age had dawned. The next time longships sailed past Iberia, raiding and pillaging as they went, their destination lay far to the east, in the Holy Land for they were Crusaders. This video was sponsored by The Great Courses Plus, quite simply one of the greatest learning resources in the world. You can find more than 11,000 lectures on practically any subject you can think of, in video and audio format by the leading experts in the world. You can access all of it seamlessly on your phone, your tablet and your computer. This is a university level education at a fraction of the price. Over the past year, The Great Courses Plus has become one of my go-to sources for information. One course in particular that I've absolutely loved has been Professor Kenneth Hall's definitive series on the Vikings. I keep going back to this course and every time I do, I learn something new. Whether you're an expert or a complete beginner, these courses are for you. You can help me out and get yourself some free knowledge by signing up today to a free trial of The Great Courses Plus by clicking on the link in the description below or by going to thegreatcoursesplus.com forward slash history time.